The Wings Over New Zealand show is brought to you in association with the Wings Over New Zealand Aviation Forum, New Zealand's number one aviation discussion forum online. There you'll find discussion on all aspects of New Zealand aviation, from history to current affairs and thousands of photos covering the Royal New Zealand Air Force, airlines, general aviation, warbird restorations, air show news, sport aviation, home building, gliding, aviation media and much, much more. You'll be in good company with other aviation enthusiasts, including pilots, engineers, warbird owners and restorers, historians and authors, modelers, aviation photographers and many others. Sign up to the Wings Over New Zealand community now. It's free and easy. Just Google Wings Over New Zealand and you'll find the forum. Welcome to the Wings Over New Zealand show. I'm your host, Dave Homewood. This is the third and last episode covering the recent Wings Over New Zealand forum meet at the Classic Flyers Museum in Tauranga. This was recorded in front of a live audience. There were also a few sound issues with the first talk. So this is an edited version. First speaker is Wing Commander Brett Marshall of the Air Force Museum of New Zealand. Right, ladies and gents, just when uh, we need to grab a seat, because apparently we're running behind time, so uh, I'm going to cut my presentation short. But being five foot six and a half, which when you're five foot six, the half counts, being short's a, a good thing. There was a little bit of humour. I'll try and uh, get a little bit of humour in there. Again, uh, looking out for anyone. If anyone does fall asleep, then I'll point to someone else and get them to stand up, so not to embarrass anybody. Um, also, every time I've given this presentation, um, no one has ever fallen asleep during this. It's also the first time I've given this presentation. So, <laughs> so um, just a little bit about me, because you're wondering who this... Uh, this uh, Incredibly good-looking young man is. Well, he couldn't make it, so uh, you got you got me instead. So um, I joined the Air Force back in '86. Um, did my uh, flying training. Went on to initially go to Andover's. Then I had a bit of a medical mishap out running when I was uh, 20 and had a brain hemorrhage, which isn't the sort of thing that happens normally when you're 20. But uh, it took me a year to get my flying medical back. From there, I went on to Friendships, the the mighty F27. Uh, from there, Andover's. I was looking at my logbook actually and. Uh, 25 years ago today, on the 4th of March 1993, I was flying between uh, Mombasa and Mogadishu because uh, we were based in Somalia as part of the, uh, the mission way back then, so it was kind of cool. Um, and then went on to fly C-130s, uh, did some recruiting, um, did a tour in um, Macedonia doing some peacekeeping. Um, came back from that, went to East Timor, came back. Flew a desk for a while, then got my instructor's ticket. So did instructing on the uh, the CT4E air trainer, um, and then the King Air, um, and then ended up in London for three years as our um, air advisor in the UK and Defence Attaché Italy. Came back EXO for the ACC. Then the one of my most rewarding posts was commanding officer of the Defence Forces Youth Development Unit, which was uh, fantastically rewarding. Got out for three months before uh, finding, yeah, kind of being asked to come back in and coming back in, um, and have spent the last four odd years doing what's called AFIC. It was called ASCC, then uh, ASIC, um, but it's the Five Eyes Air Force Interoperability Council working together with uh, Australia, Canada, the US, and the, and the UK. Um, and since last year, I've been in that role and been uh, EXO now Deputy Director of the Air Force Museum. So that's a uh, career, 30 odd years, and uh, less than a minute. Right, the Air Force Museum. I 
thought this presentation, I'm going to run through it pretty quickly because um, a lot of this information I think most of you will probably know. So the Air Force Museum, first of all, Sir Henry Wigram. Um, the reason, I guess, one of the visionaries on why we have the, uh, the Royal New Zealand Air Force. Now, he immigrated to New Zealand back in 1883, was a mayor of Christchurch, and he also liked innovation, and at that stage, um, aviation was something that's quite innovated. Um, as shown here by um, one 16-year-old George Bolt in the Port Hills, um, who used to like making models, and uh, also made bigger homemade gliders. Um, from there, Henry Wigram also owned the Littleton News, and he had he'd been petitioning the government about, you know, hey, I can see that aviation is going to be used for the military, government, other, other spending concerns and other priorities didn't really see that, despite they just uh, paid for HMS New Zealand um, at some considerable cost for, for World War I, but they couldn't see that aviation would be any use, really, uh, at that stage in, uh, in warfare. Undeterred, he took out this article in, uh, in newspapers to try and get the, the the public influence behind him, kind of like the Fairfax of its day um, in some respects. Um, after attaining backing from uh, other aviation enthusiasts, Sandy Wigram formed the um, Canterbury Aviation Company. Now, um, they had two what's pictured here, cauldron aircraft. They cost, uh, what was it, 1,700 pounds, which is about 220,000 in, in, uh, in, in today's money. And um, those were used basically for uh, primary training. Young men would come and they would pay their, uh, I think in the equivalent of today, of about $10,000, I think back then about £100, and they would learn their initial flying training. It was apparently about two hours of flying, the rest of theory, and they'd go up, they'd have to fly a, a figure of eight, a, um, a, I think, I don't know if it was a dead stick, but a, a spot landing and a, and, and a PFL. So um, I think uh, with some of your uh, lessons, Brian, I'm sure that they, <laughs> they would have been fantastic. Um, this here is uh, block seven, which is what some of the woods stay in, and we've got a picture, a couple of pictures away showing that block seven. It was built back in actually 1917, and the barracks were used up until the 70s. Apparently, it used to it's quite a, quite quite a good design. Used to get in the winter ice both on, on both sides of the window pane, um, yeah, which would kind of you know give you obviously a good night's sleep. Um, and then here, the Canterbury Aviation Company, as I said, trained pilots um, who are eligible for commissions in the Royal Flying Corps. So they do their initial training and then make their way over to, to the UK. So here was the original space at uh, Wigram and um, Block 7. So just to give you an idea where, where it is there. Um, so Henry Wigram also had the foresight to actually purchase the, uh, the race course just below. Um, which you can see at the bottom there, and ended up gifting that to the, to the government as well because he could see the, the future in military aviation. And here you can see a picture of um, clearing the scrub, turning it uh, into, a, into an airfield. Now, health and safety back then was slightly different. This was um, one of the hangars that was uh, produced, I think it was seven hangar, um, uh, no longer um, on, the, on the airfield anymore. Um, but what does it say here? cost of around about £20,000 to produce equivalent of about $2.3 million today. Um, 50 men um, and took about six months to build. That was where we uh, used to have um, the mighty friendship. So, so it's a plug for the friendship. Um, and then you can see the airfield now. Um, that hangar there is uh, the hangar that is um, 
it's camouflaged and that's the main hanger for the museum, that's uh, hanger number one. And also I'll just point out the actual uh, area where the um, museum land is at the moment. So it's got these buildings here, it's still part of the museum, comes down, is it lane, it's still here, it's where headquarters and we've got the large front of the museum here. And that looks like it's unfinished but it's actually camouflaged on top of the museum. And I'll just move the speaker or the mic up again. Um, so then this was some of the initial training. Now uh, Matt, you know, that's uh, two mess. You know, there's um, a few stories in there. I'm sure Sammy Clark, um, yep. Yes, he had a word to me about, yeah, exactly. Probably the reason, <laughs> some of the reasons why. He said, yeah. So um, Wigan was one of three permanent bases in New Zealand uh, in World War II and responsible for, it says here, electrical wireless armament administration trades for, for the Air Force. But I'm just going to skip forward um, on time, although, no, I'll, I'll definitely talk about this, this slide. Um, Women's Auxiliary Air Force. Um, the first 70 women were enlisted on the 28th of June 1941 um, and there were a number of things that needed to change at Wigram because initially women weren't allowed to live on base with the, with the men. Initially they would actually live in married quarters off base and they had to also change the ablutions um, and uh, make other ac accommodations. So that's, um, yeah, back in, in 1941. And female toilets, it says here, were a, were a top priority. And then we had the opening of the museum in 87. Now, I remember it quite vividly because I had a week added to my officer's training course for the opening of the museum, marching and, and doing parades. So this is, this is the museum of today. At night, at the moment. <laughs> Still at night, dawn's, dawn's approaching. Okay, we, we may not be seeing the museum of... To oh. oh, I can see it on here. Oh, said a <laughs> I thought you were watching this, so I could turn it around, but uh, for some reason it's not projecting. I'll escape that. My apologies. I'll see if I can... Uh, I'll show that bit later. Yeah. Yeah. But it is a terribly exciting video, um, and if you go to the, um, the Facebook page, you'll be able to, uh, to see that video. But you can hear the music in the, in the background, so sorry, sorry about that. So, the um, museum today... So this is the museum of, of today. The initial museum was the, uh, the original hangar and the entrance out there, and then we built the new extension, which opened in uh, 2013. Now, one of the things about the, um, the new extension was that after the earthquakes in Christchurch, we, Christchurch lost its convention centre and it also lost the town hall. So rather than moving into the new extension, in a relationship with the Christchurch City Council, we pretty much gave them full usage and they still have it today. That's the, the space there, um, pretty much 6,000 square metres. So um, at the moment, half of it is full of our reserve collection. It's an engineer, you know, air crew just stuff things up. <coughs> also during the earthquakes, uh, there were a number of institutions that 
there were a number of institutions whose buildings were, were damaged. So the um, Eagles Museum became the recovery centre and we had collections from all over the Canterbury region stored in, in the museum. We've still got some there at the moment. We've got the... Um, the, nurse, the pews from the nurses chapel just outside the hospital which has just been repaired. We've still got Littleton Museum and they've just had a new site that uh, they're going to start building on but their collection's still in the museum. And it was a, actually a fantastic thing for the museums around the area that the Air Force Museum w was able to do. And you know it was quite a hectic time for, for the museum not only going through that period of the earthquakes uh, in, in itself but also just the whole, you know, the, the, the city as it's been rebuilding over the, over the last five, six years. Wigram Skies as well, the Wigram of old, um, basically where the, the inn is, it's, um, that's the land that the Air Force Museum is. But the cool thing is, it's the only place I think in New Zealand where you can um, drive along a runway, um, <laughs> although at Ahaki you used to be able to drive along a runway apparently, <laughs> um, and it's still called the runway. Um, and that's it. And the, the development is huge, you know, it's supermarkets, schools, housing, etc. So you can vaguely make out where, where Wigram used to be. But we've still got, um, you know, about 100 uh, or 40 hectares still um, outside. Um, and that is still defence land and hopefully we'll get that for him in a day. There are some rumourings that there may be usage for that for defence in the future. They are looking for locations for a new tri-service college um, and Wigram is one of the places that's in the potential mix for that. Okay, so that's our mission statement, to preserve and present the history of New Zealand military aviation for commemoration, inspiration, learning and enjoyment. One of the things for me that I am passionate about about the museum is we, ha we have some fantastic aircraft, but for, for me, what's more poignant are, are the names. Um, the fingers there you can see pointing to the role of honour. You know, for me, I've got personal friends that I flew with um, whose, whose names are on there and that I served with. People I had a beer with, I went on Kentucky with, who are now on the role of honour. The difference about the role of honour at our museum than others is that it doesn't just include those who died from combat, it includes anyone who died while serving in the RNZAF. So, um, incredibly poignant and an incredibly special part that I think makes military museums different um, or a point of difference from a, a lot of other museums. Staff and volunteers, we can't work as, as here without volunteers who are just passionate, just um, come in all the time. We've got um, Probably over about 50 front of house volunteers, plus all our volunteers that work in the, in the restorations as well out the back. Um, that's our volunteer staff dinner from a couple of years ago and every year we have a, have a dinner to, to celebrate and to, and to thank them because the museum just frankly, as you'd know here, doesn't run without all the tireless work and the, and the passion that those volunteers bring. Um, collections team, that's uh, I think a two store and in the back behind some of the main hangars, we've still got all of our archival material. Some of the cool things in there, um, Sir Keith Park's personal logbook, and it's that you open that up, or you're actually not allowed to open it up, you have to get the collections manager to open it up with his um, white gloved hands, but you can see during the, when the, in the height of the Battle of Britain, book. And then obviously collections. Now they've just moved um, from the old hangar into the brand new collections restoration area. The great thing about that, underfloor heating, which is fantastic. I'm just not having a good day. Yeah. But it'll, it'll get better. And that's uh, 
when they were working on the, the Oxford, which has now been fully restored and looks absolutely fantastic. Um, Horizon to Horizon Gallery, and that's got heaps of, heaps of stories in that that it tells, and that's where it kind of brings that personal sacrifice um, alive. Um, for example, um, everyone would probably know um, about Sergeant James Allen Ward VC um, and the exploits of him. And that's a, when you're talking to groups that don't know much about aviation, you tell about the story when he climbed out on the wing with the, the canvas shroud to try and put out the fire. And, um, and the aircraft hall um, is fantastic. Now, we are doing a redevelopment. <laughs> I should have been taller. Uh, not my fault. Um, and that's the aircraft hall. And the aircraft hall is fantastic, and we use it for heaps and heaps of, uh, or lots of fantastic functions. Um, and when we decorate it up, you know, you have the runway lights there that look fantastic. Um, and you can have light columns or, or set it up. Um, this function here, last year, New Zealand, uh, in the aircraft hall, at Christchurch held the New Zealand Tourism Awards was one of the main functions. And it's the first time I've been to Christchurch since the earthquake, so that was fantastic. And it went so well that this year they want to hold it in the aircraft hall again, which is almost unheard of. So it's great for the city to be able to bring that tourism back, and the museum definitely partnerships with that. Um, our captured space is one where we talk about the prisoner of war story. Um, and then our interaction with, with kids. And I've got a, uh, a 10-year-old and 12-year-old girls, um, and they love the holiday program. It's great for me as well, I can take them to work uh, and uh, the holiday program pick them up afterwards. But it's the coolest game of hide and seek which they start with every day. It's called Prison Guard, um, but it's the coolest game of hide and seek the kids reckon in the world because who else gets to run around and hide in the museum while they're being searched for by cat kids with, uh, with hats on. But just also part of that engagement piece and in that engagement piece, education. Since, um, when was it, uh, 1999, we had an education officer, fully trained, or a, a um, school teacher. Um, roughly between six and a half to 7,000 school children a year we have coming in to learn about aviation, learn about the RNZ, and that's a, a great outreach program. Let's get past some of these. Aircraft all there. Um, the free tour, we have three tours, three times a day, um, which are free to, to go, go through. And also the museum itself, is free as well. And the reason why it's free, I was having a fantastic discussion with Andrew before about the pros and cons of whether something should be free or whether it be not, and there are two, um, two very distinct and each valid viewpoints. I think the reason for us, before the museum came, was free, and it was about 2007-2008 period, I believe, when it went free, um, it used to have about 30 to 40,000 visitors. Um, last year, we were 129,000 visitors. So you can for us, I think the mentality is very much around if you charge for something, then you probably get people that want to come along and are interested in aviation. If you don't, then it opens up to anyone. They might come along from it's free, but you can educate them about the RNZF, about the history of New Zealand's Air Force and what it's done. So they go away learning a lot more and maybe wouldn't have come in the first place. So that's one of the reasons, I guess, um, why we're free. Other things that I'm focusing on is engagement. Engagement with the current RNZF. Um, and talking about contemporary collecting, so that when you go to the museum, you go away knowing more about what we're currently doing. And you can see the touch screen there to the left. So that's um, interactive, you can scroll up. It's taller than me, so more than five foot six and a half. Um, and that shows our current ops, what we're actually doing. Also engaging with the XRNZF, with the aviation community, and with the public, and telling our, our, our current story of what the Air Force is actually doing. And I'm just starting to look at when we go on the tours, I'm trying to come up with a brief to show the public about what the Air Force is doing. And that's me. So um, 
Timing wise, at 40 minutes I've taken 25, so I've, I've brought us ahead of schedule even with the uh, technical hitches there. So um, now any questions that you might have I'll be more than happy to ask, or because we've got Group Captain Matheson still here, um, he'll be able to answer if I can't. So. <laughs> Um, we've got two other large hangers, two and three hanger. So in two hanger, for example, there's the Andover, which is fantastic. And also in that huge space, half of it at the back, we've got our reserve collection squash. So we've got the Bristol Freighter there. Um, we've got two Skyhawks. We've got the Strike Master. We've got a Loon, which is the US version of a V1 bomb. Um, we've got uh, Devon, um, uh, our second Iroquois, um, etc. So that's in the back half of there. So the front of the 6,000 square metres, B-Base use about 3,000 of that for functions. Uh, what types would the museum invite visitors to get? Things like a Corsair? Yeah, I think... Like Anything uh, uh, in particular on the Bushland? Because um, we're actually just going, the board has directed, we have a uh, acquisitions and disposals committee and it wants them to come up with a plan, what are the, the spaces that we're, that we're missing in the museum to tell the story of their RNZF. Now there were, we were in the, the Australians, for example, there were some loose discussions, did we want to horn it um, when they go out of service? And for us, no, because it doesn't tell our story. Um, so it's very much what tells our story of what we've been doing. And our uh, method of, um, I guess, preservation, if you like, at the moment, is to bring the aircraft in the day it came off the flight line and keep it as exactly like that as we can. So the Iroquois, when it came off and came to us, we just want to keep it like that. One of the, I think, cool exhibits is the Strike Master, because it looks exactly like when I flew it back in uh, what the, the, the late 80s so we, we don't um, unless it's a restoration project but ideally our next ones we want to get uh, the C-130 and the P-3 and there is enough grass to land a C-130 and I reckon all those that will be on the flight line will be able to use it as a fundraiser, sell them tickets because they probably won't want to be in their houses um, to come along and watch it up, up close. So that'll be our, I think our next biggest things will be um, getting those and we've had discussions just last week with the Deputy Chief around uh, getting those aircraft allocated and working out if we, if we first get one and then if we have a choice which one has the best provenance for the Air Force but the funding will be about um, a hangar or some structure to put them under will be will be a huge project. Yep. Um, you may be aware that the first aircraft You will have to then come down and there'll be more than a free coffee on offer. <laughs> <laughs> but that's great, thank you very much. You say you've got a long book for each part, does that it says World War Two. It's the Battle of Britain era. It's his personal logbook. Yeah. Because there is a lot. There has been a lot of controversy about which hurricane we had and whether we had two. Well, yeah, we will. We will. It's, 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 it's
Okay. Well, now, yep. I'll give you my um, details afterwards. Yeah, just let me know. We also I think that's what it's like when you come here the, the passion for those that know it is so important to keep that heritage you know because exactly that that's why having the aircraft in there that tell the story of those New Zealanders that gave their lives for the service of the country because they served with the Air Force and I think if you it would be a, tra a travesty not to have one Because I only found out the other day the DC3, it's Madame Cholet, because they're all called Wombles, and she has, and there's the sticker of Madame Cholet up underneath. And it's nice when you can go to the collections manager because someone's told and says, Oh, um, do you know about Madame Cholet? And he's been there 10 years. And... Right. As we had. 13 squadrons of Corsairs and 424 of them. Have you got any in the museum? No, no, we would love to. And if we, and to, to have a New Zealand um, Corsair, if it came up, that would be something that we would really be interested in. about 3 million, right? Yeah. Yeah, if anyone, um, yeah, I'm open to um, donations as well. <laughs> if, if anyone's here. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. With our funding, um, it's. Uh, we are one of CDF's outputs, so he funds um, uh, about probably three quarters of the staff. The staff, we've got um, just under 30 staff, of those about 24 are funded by uh, Defence. There's three military, myself being one of them, and the rest are NZDF civilians, and the Museum Trust Board um, funds the, the other six. Um, with respect to other funding, oh, Defence looks after the buildings because they're on Defence land and they are Defence buildings. The Trust Board, however, the new build, it raised money and paid for that, about $16 million, and then, because Defence couldn't afford it, and it's been now handed over to Defence, and Defence, in the agreement, looks after the maintenance of that. Other fundraising, with respect to renting out the space, we uh, get funding from that. Um, other things, birthday parties, um, you know, kids' hunts, um, you know, we have a mosquito simulator um, that's, that's very popular, the cafe on site, those sorts of things. But funding is always to use the creative juices to come up with, with new ways. Where's the direction of the museum going in the next five or ten years? What's the sort of, uh, you know, a forecast of the direction of where you go, yep. your aims and... The main, the main thing in the next four to five years I mentioned is the CNE Hall, which currently um, is being used by you know, the majority by the, the city council for, for events. 
we should get that in 2020. We've already started the planning with respect to trying to redesign it, and it's almost rethinking the museum. It's kind of like saying, if you had this much space and it was absolutely clear, how would you design a museum from the ground up? So thinking about flow, think about how do you tell stories? Do you tell it chronologically? Do you tell it in different types of ways? Um, for events, how do you create spaces? And that's probably the main body of work. That plus the uh, the C130 and the uh, the P3, but those will be dependent on you know when we actually are, are going to be changing them. But the the, the reinvention of the museum with the CNE Hall is the main one. I understand there's a, a, a change of personnel from the regards to Not 100% sure where, where you're... Because you yeah. re-changes in the museum, the, yeah. the structure is pretty much the same as it is uh, going forward. But inclusive with the public, we are, you know, for the public, we have the, you know, we're the most visited defence site, bar none. Um, by the public in, in New Zealand, and we and that engagement with the public is, is critically important. With respect to going forward, you know that the structure of the museum at the moment, the director, you know, there's myself and the other managers that sit there, collections manager, our visitor experience team, communications, uh, and myself. So yeah, the, the structure. Yeah, I'm not. Yeah, maybe. Hope my job safe. <laughs> <laughs> We have staff on whenever we've got functions. Um, with the CNE hall, it's a lot easier because there aren't many exhibits there. And the aircraft hall, they still remain roped off, but there are with Vbase and us, and we have a staff member on site at, at all times. And to be honest, the type of functions we normally have, we don't allow in the aircraft hall at the back. We don't allow um, school balls, for example, because they can be fraught with danger. But yeah, <laughs> but where you have the more mature and sensible crowd, supposedly, <laughs> at times, um, you, we haven't had too many issues um, that we're aware of, uh, to be honest. But we have normally the atrium area where you saw the dinner. We have a lot of dinners there and school functions or graduations or prize givings in that space as well. And at the end of the CNE hall. CNA hall. Probably about it, but thanks very much for uh, allowing me to talk today, Dave. It's uh, been on it, and if anyone's um, down in the, in the museum, um, for only $5, you'll get a free coffee. Um, in fact, it'll be $4.50. No, but feel free, if you t whenever you're passing through Christchurch, I'd love to uh, you know, make sure you, um, you, know, you know, get on one of the guided tours, and if I'm waiting around, make sure you, you, you say good day. But it's uh, been a pleasure being able to chat today, despite the, the small issues. Thanks very much. Well, I'd like to introduce uh, our last speaker of the day, Arthur Gatland. And uh, Arthur is a long experienced and very interesting pilot. And um, he's going to talk today about some of his flying in the RF and um, also about a book that he's written and various other things. So. Hmm. Okay. Thank you very much. And I realise that you've all been paying attention all day and probably pretty tired. 
and um, I'll try and make this as fast and snappy, as interesting as I can. So what I'm going to talk about is, is the book I've written, which is basically on, on my life, involves flying and a lot of sports and so on. The reason I did it was I wrote, sorry, I published my father's um, war memoirs, The Sterling Pilot and an Escape Artist, which many of you have already seen and read. And I was surprised by the number of people who said to me, when are you going to write your own memoirs? So I sort of stored that away, and I also made a promise, a deathbed promise, and I mean that literally to my mother, who'd been asking me for years to promise I was going to write my, my story, and she extracted a promise on her deathbed, so I have no excuse. But having published one book, I had a lot of confidence to get on and do it. I do feel, I'm only going to say this once, I do feel a bit strange writing a book about myself and my exploits and saying, I did this, I did this. I'm only going to apologise once. Okay, but please accept that I feel a little bit uncomfortable, but I'm just going to tell, tell it like it is, and we'll go from there. Um, I'm going to talk quite quickly about all the various things I've done through my school days, sporting, gliding, getting into the Air Force, etc., etc. I'm going to talk fast. If you want me to stop and talk a bit more about one particular thing, please ask a question. If you don't, I'll just move on. I will be talking quite a lot about why computers don't work when you want them to. And I'll be talking quite a lot about Harrier flying and hunters and hawks in particular, because I'm sure that's what a lot of you are here to, to hear about. But I will be glossing over the, the sporting side of things as well. So as you can see from the front of the book, my sporting interests have been mainly fencing, um, New Zealand representative Commonwealth Games, all sorts of other things, competitions in China. Windsurfing, New Zealand national champion, world champs, and so on, plus administration and organising events. Um, basketball, I've played basketball if, since I was 14 at school, literally non-stop, and I'm still playing basketball in A grade league, and I organise the New Zealand team. And last year we got a gold medal in the World Masters Games, etc., etc. And what else we got there? Gliding. So I'm a gliding instructor, do aerobatic displays, held a New Zealand record, and all sorts of things. So. Quite a, quite a lot of interest in different things, and my, my wife accused me of being stupidly competitive, so you can accept or ignore that as you wish. So very quick on my background, so I chose my parents very well, which is the great essential to having a, having a good life, and uh, that's Dad coming back from, from World War II, DFM investiture. My grandfather was the Arthur Gatlin Mark I, and he was, the, for interest, the inaugural um, headmaster at Gisborne Boys High. Uh, who was it, Matt or someone? No, so yeah. Do you go to Gisborne Boys High? Yeah. Ah, okay. <laughs> <laughs> That's okay. Um, Dad came back from the war. Being in a prisoner war camp for a few years is a very good saving scheme. So he came back and he bought his parents' farm and got into farming. He also played a little bit at rally driving in the days when it was navigation mostly rather than high-speed stuff you see today. But then he got into speedboat racing. And some of you may already know he, he built and raced uh, Widget, Coventry Climax, you know, Cooper Climax racing cars, Sterling Moss, Jack Brabham era, and held speed records there, and then built Mystic Miss for uh, Bill Stevenson Sr., Sir William Stevenson, and held Australasian records, won Massport Cup and all sorts of things. So that was the, uh, um, his, my first interest in seeing somebody else driven by sports and doing well at sports, and it really made an impact on me. I loved it. That's me sitting on a widget somewhere, um, now, during my life, I claim to have saved nine lives, roughly. This was number one. We were down at Carapiro, Lake Carapiro, at a racing event, standing on a, a jetty out watching the racing. I was about, I think, 10 years old, 
and the kids all along and I just heard a sploosh and I went, what was that? And I looked down and beside me in the water, a kid had fallen in and he was underwater. I could just see his head and he was groping for the surface. And I went, shit. Well, the kids at 10 say, shit, they probably do. I down on my knees, reached down, just managed to grab his hair and pull him up to the surface and then other people saw it and helped me and put him out. And I'm convinced if I hadn't seen him, he was gone. So, yep, number one. The Gatlin Gliding family, we had five, it's my thick and I'm working here, who knows, yes it is. Five glider pilots in the, in the family, three tow pilots, three instructors. So I had, I had a good grounding in flying, which really stood me in good stead when I applied to join the RAF. Uh, Dad won the Rothmans, it was a Rothmans Gold Club Cup Challenge for the first glider flight from Auckland to Wellington, which he achieved. I can't remember what Peter Lane will know what year it was because he knows everything. But I'm not going to ask you now, no test. <laughs> okay, and he flew from Ardmore to Masterton, which met the parameters of the, of the test. So that was a, a huge achievement in its day. And I mean, still is, still is a massive achievement. Auckland to Wellington, non stop in a glider. Uh, he was co still competing in gliding champs when he was 85 years old and still uh, capable of podium finish. V really impressive pilot. Um, I got into fencing at school amongst many sports. I did gymnastics, athletics, high jump, long jump. Um, came third in, I don't know, Auckland champs and high jump and long jump. But I got into fencing and I really enjoyed it. It was great fun and I started doing quite well. So, to cut a long story short, I went into the secondary school nationals and came second in 1966 and the Wellington and the following year in Auckland came second again and we came first in the teams. The Auckland team won the teams event. Three of the four competitors came from Papakura High School. So at the time, Papakura High School was the eminent fencing school in the country. Unfortunately, it's gone a bit downhill since then, but they do seem to be picking up a little bit. Um, so yeah, I accumulated quite a few trophies just by the time I left school, mostly from fencing. And we did okay in basketball as well. We came second in the Auckland Provincial Basketball Champs, Papakura High School. So he's the guy to blame. Cess Milne, great teacher, Papakura High School science teacher, ex-Bitfire photo recce pilot. Uh, he joined the RF in 1936, went through the Air Force College, so pre-war. Uh, he was shot down and finished up in Starlight Glove 3, which ironically is where my father finished up as well, although they didn't know each other. And he learned fencing at Cranwell, so he taught fencing at Papakura High School, and great guy. Um, I got him involved in gliding because we used to have what they call an intensive week where at the end of the school year after exams it was a spare week and you can go and do whatever you like. Dad said, why don't you organise a gliding week? I went, oh, cool idea. So I got Seth Milne involved and he learnt gliding, joined the gliding club and became a, a lecturer in gliding skills and, and theory and instructor as well and fantastic guy. Uh, I flew in the, the New Zealand Nationals when I was 17. With Dad we share flew and well, I did okay. <laughs> I think we finished 7th or 8th between us and Dad did better than me of course but for, for a young kid flying in his first nationals at that age was, was a great thrill and of course all of that did me, stood me in great stead applying for the RF and I got accepted, I went to the Air Force College at Cranwell there was 80 applicants from New Zealand and two got accepted so I was pretty happy with that um, Two and a half years at the Air Force College we in a briefly went solo on chipmunks if you'd flown before they'd just set you solo and that was it so I was given five hours, 50 joule, sent solo, 
and that was it for me. Everybody else got 30 hours. Um, we went to trips to Berlin, trips to West Germany, where we did a, um, things like abseiling, kayaking on the, the Monazay, where the dam busters bombed the dam, um, escape and evasion for five days, which I just loved and thought was fantastic. And talking with Dad, I said, you know, this is the story of his book. Um, of course, it was different for you during the war. He said, no, it wasn't. Best sport ever. <laughs> so, <laughs> hence the title of his book. <laughs> Um, so we've got Berlin, the Brandenburg Gate there, um, South America, Bogota for independent celebrations. There was 10 officer cadets from the Army, Navy and Air Force academies in the UK got invited down for that and I was one of the lucky ones. We've, we did our flying jet training of course in Jet Provost, which of course was the, the Mark IV of that was a predecessor to the Strike Master. Now, during my time at the Air Force, I was fencing. I arrived at the Air Force College, and week one I said, um, can I have next weekend off to go to the World Youth Fencing Champs? And they went, um, yeah, okay. <laughs> so I turned up into uh, London, conveniently, and I came about, what did I say, 40th, I think, out of 95 in the World Youth Champs. First international champs, no manager, no idea what I was doing, but struggled through and sort of did okay. Uh, so the following year, the, the New Zealand selected me to go to the World Youth Champs again, which was in Genoa, in Italy. And I went down with the British team, and that time I was a bit better prepared, and I came 24th, which for a Commonwealth country, with all the, the East European powerhouse of fencing, that was, that was a pretty good result. And I was just blown, blown away with my, my result on that. Um, this is the Air Force team. Now, the reason I'm just pointing this photo out, this. This guy here was a, a Saudi Arabian prince, Banda Sultan, Banda bin Sultan bin Abdul Aziz. And he doesn't look very Arab, does he? He looks North American. So I googled, always thought for years. Oh, he was the son of Arab prince, prince the son of the king, and an uh, Ethiopian slave girl. And so he was born, and it took eight years or so before the king recognised him as a prince, but he's recognised as a prince. He also looks extremely youthful because apparently he lied about his age to get into the Air Force. <laughs> um, but he was a really, really good guy. Um, when he went back to Saudi Arabia, he flew fighters for a while, but he had a, some sort of accident and hurt his back. So he retired from flying, got into politics, he became the Saudi Arabian ambassador to the United Nations. So just a little side issue there. Um, during my jet trading, I said to the RAF, um, what's the chances of going back to New Zealand for the trials for the Commonwealth Games team? I need three weeks. They went, um, yeah, okay. So they pushed me through flying training, we three flights a day and got me three weeks ahead. So I went back to New Zealand, trials for the Commonwealth Games team, got into the team, went back to Cranwell, finished my flying training again, finished it three weeks early so I could go up to Edinburgh for the Commonwealth Games. So I went up there and uh, I missed out on the aerobatic competition for flying training, which is a bit of a shame. We came, I didn't do so well on the individual because I'd basically pull the hamstring, that's my excuse. Um, but we, we just missed out in the middle, fourth in both the foil teams and the, and the FA teams. I missed the closing ceremony because I had to rush back to Cranwell for my graduation from the Air Force College. Uh, when I got back there, my, my Batman, you know what a Batman is? A sort of valet you, you pay to iron your shirts and so on. And his name was Albert, and he'd been the, in the RAF College forever. In fact, he was Douglas Barter's Batman. And he could tell some stories. Okay, sir, I've ironed your shirt for you in your uniform. Oh, thank, you. thank you very much, you're a star. 
So I had my uniform ready for graduation and I, I won the flying prize from Air Force College despite all the disruption and so on. So again, pretty happy with that. And I, I've also the uh, prize, shared the prize for officer training as well. So on to fast jet training at, at Valley uh, on Nats, Valley being in uh, Anglesey in North Wales. The Nat was just like a little sports car, you strapped it on. When you sat down it, it went on the nose gear. It was, it was a little sports car and, and fantastic machine to fly. Um, this is the unofficial photo of our course. We had two Jordanians, two Singaporeans, uh, one Australian, Al Godsall at the back there. Everybody else were uh, Brits, Poms, apart from me. This guy here was Jock Stirrup, who went on to become Chief of the Air Staff in later years. He was uh, <clears throat> a fairly pompous, arrogant sort of the time, but I'm sure he approved. <laughs> there he's okay. At the end of the, sorry. In <laughs> um, 75 hours, I, I won the, the flying prize there and um, the aerobatic trophy and the Cup of Honour, which was the best overall results for all of that. And then we went on to weapons of combat training. I actually had a holding job for a short time because the winner of the, the top person on the course could pick whatever aircraft type they wanted and I said I'd love to fly the Harrier. And they went, well actually there's no courses available for the time being but let's make some phone calls. Yep, we can give you a Harrier course but you have to go on a holding job for six months at Kimball maintenance unit where the Red Arrows were based and you'll get lots of flying and maybe backseat ride with the Red Arrows but you have to wait six months. I went, yep, you'll do me. Wait for Harriers. So the Hunter course was in Shimana and Devon, and typically those are the sort of things we did. Um, actual photograph of me, can't see much, but it's nice to say that was actually me flying that formation landing. Um, great, great fun, great course, great aircraft to fly, and I'll come back to talk about the Hunter a bit more later on. It was during my air-to-air um, -air initial training on use of the gun site, gyro gun site, I had my first engine failure and a hunter and forced landing. So I had about 15 hours on type now, but we had actually been taught, dual, we'd been taught engine phase and how to do it. So in those days I was fairly quiet and I didn't want to make a fuss about things. I've got much more bolder and arrogant these days. But so I said to my, we were three ship doing this air-to-air gun site training. And I said, um, I've had an engine failure, I'm, I'm going to go back and do a forced landing, but you guys just carry on without me. And the instructor said, uh, Roger, okay. <laughs> None of this mayday, mayday stuff, you know, like I should be doing. Oh, I don't want to make a fuss. So we went back and did a glide approach back at Chivina, which worked out well. This is, this is how you did it. It was called a one-on-one. -on -one. And you, you glide about 240 knots. It's not a bad glide, and a hunter was clean. And the radar would bring you onto the centre line. You could do it in cloud. And then they would tell you, you're 10 miles, you should be 10,000 feet. So you're gliding and you just intercept the slope, whatever height you get. Five miles, 5,000 feet. Once you intercept the slope, gear down and half flap and then 180 knots and push down. So you're doing one mile per thousand feet. So it's not as steep as a space shuttle. It's probably half or a bit less the space shuttle descent, but it's, it's quite steep. But it works really well. You can pop out a cloud 800 feet and then just go, oh yeah, there's the threshold, full flap and just land, and it was actually relatively easy to do. All you've got to be is be in the right place when you have the failure, failure, so you're within gliding range. If you're not, I mean, that's it. But if you're, in the, if you're close enough, it's not too hard at all. So that was my first one. 
air combat. Now this is the sport of kings. I loved air combat. So obviously what you're trying to do is get behind the other guy and shoot him down. Yeah, I mean, it sounds simple, doesn't it? This was all guns, no missiles at this stage. And you start off line abreast in battle formation, so 2,000 metres apart. Out was turned for combat go, and the instructor or whoever's in charge waits until you fair way away, and in was turn go, and then it's all on. So when you go out was turn, of course, you go to full thrust. And then when you turn in, turn in hard, and then you can either dive, try and get under the other guy, or go high, or whatever, and it's just fully on, full on. Now, I had a, to be honest and modest. I had a real knack for this. And I don't know what it was, but I just had good 3D visual awareness or something, and I won just about all the combat I did. And Robin Chester, one of our simulator instructors at Auckland, told me about six months ago, he said, I've been trying to tell you this. I used to fly with a guy who's a BA pilot who um, was a BA or Virgin. I used to fly with, it doesn't matter, British guy. Um, sorry? Virgin, yeah. Um, he said, do you to know a Kiwi called Arthur Gatlin? He said, yeah, I do. He said, he was the only student who ever beat me at combat. But he said, I didn't feel too bad because he beat the other instructors as well. So I went, oh, I actually don't remember that, but oh, I'll take it. <laughs> Air combat was just great fun. We had a few war stories during our course from students having a bit of fun. Uh, we were talking about air-to-air -air firing with banners and so on and, and mishaps. Yeah, one of the Singaporeans got a bit too far back when he was doing an attack. So he finished up trying to pull, and he pulled right behind the banner and attacked it from the other side. So he's firing, the meteor's towing, he's firing what he's going, his gun sight's going past the meteor on the other side, and then he didn't pull out in time, so he flew into the cable. So I, I was about to go flying, and I saw this aircraft with a, like a great cheese wire cut up the side, which is where he'd hit the cable, and luckily the banner broke off. It came back and landed okay, but whew, real mess. We also had one of the um, Jordanian pilots, well, I think it was Jordanian, one of the Arab pilots while I was there, who landed in the undershoot at night. And the, the duty instructor was sitting in a little caravan at the end of the runway. So he hit the crash button as this guy landed about 100 metres short and there's dirt everywhere and he bounced up and sort of went off and along the runway and he couldn't see what happened to him. So he hit the crash button, all the rescue vehicles rushed out to the aircraft and the canopy's open and there's, there's no pilot. Now where is he? He's, he's probably banged his head and he's wandered off into the night, so they're driving around looking with torches and trying to find this guy. No, no sign of him. And then one of the instructors happened to go up to the officer's mess, and there sitting in a chair, and he's flying suit reading the paper, is this guy, <laughs> Ali. He said, what are you doing here? He said, what do you mean? <laughs> you just been, no, I have not been flying. I did not go flying tonight. <laughs> Yes, you come on, look, he's just said, no, what's not me? So, <laughs> losing face is apparently more important than telling the truth, but we managed to persuade him that it's not a big deal, but telling the truth is actually quite important in our culture. <laughs> um, after Chivana and Hunter flying, oh, I'll say the other thing about Chivana was we had a lot of pilots, trainees, and not enough instructors, so we did mornings or afternoons. And the other time, I went surfing. It was fantastic. Great beach down there. So it was half surfing, half flying. Hey, it doesn't get much better than that, does it? Uh, went to, we did a short 
eight hours flying on helicopters at Turnhill in the middle of England before going on to Harriers. So the controls are completely different, but it just gives you the perspective of hovering. That was just all they were trying to achieve. And it was really good fun. We went to spot clearings and all sorts of things. And I, while I was there, I heard a story which I just love, so I've got to tell you the story. It's second or third hand, but I'm, I'm assured it was true. So student pilots on the helicopters used to go on a, a cross-country, and they'd go away at 10-minute intervals and fly this navigation route. And Arab, Arab pilot, I'll call him Ali, heads off the cross-country, and he fly along cross-country, on track, and he goes, God, I'm busting for a crap, really getting desperate. I, I, can't, I can't finish this flight. I'm going to have to land and go and relieve myself. So he looks down, and there's a, there's a bit of a hill there with trees around, and it's a flat, flat paddock on the top. I'll land there. So he landed on top of the hill, got out, left the rotor just spinning around, and rushed down some trees on the side of the hill to have a, have a crap. Unfortunately, the vibration on the wet grass, the helicopter slips, and it goes across the side of the hill and crashes, crashes down into the ravine alongside and bursts into flames. Shortly after that, John Smith's flying along in his helicopter, dig, 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 and he looks down and goes, oh, smoke and flames, it looks like a crashed helicopter, I bet that's Ali. I'd better go and see if I can help, so where can I land? Oh look, there's a little flat spot there on the top of the hill. <laughs> so he lands the helicopter on top of the hill and leaves it sitting there with the rotor going. <laughs> rushes over the side of the hill to, to see if he can help. Meanwhile, Ali comes up out of the trees and pulls his pants up and jumps into his helicopter and steps up, <laughs> takes off <laughs> and carries around his navigation exercise. John spits up and goes, bastard! <laughs> so he had to phone Turnhill and say, I've got some really bad news. There's been a, I'm sure Ali's crashed and there's just no way he could have survived. And apart from that, some bastard stolen my helicopter. <laughs> <laughs> okay, then we went back to onto the real world. So onto the Harrier OCU, and this was a, a taken from the reconnaissance camera on the side of the Harrier, just one of me flying early on. Um, the, the program was similar to the Hunter program in terms of rating, instrument rating, formation, gun sight work, navigation, etc., etc., and firing weapons. But of course, the V-style side as well. The, you know, the vertical. Short, you know what V dollars? <laughs> Vertical short takeoff and landing. So the hovering bit. Um, the first 22 flights were the V style. And it's, a lot of them were only short, just three, three vertical takeoffs, hovers and land, 15 minutes. So some of them are quite short. You did two dual flights in a T4 and two seater. And then you were sent solo on a conventional flight. And then you did solo hovers. So there wasn't much two seat time. Halfway through our course, the first course of US Marines arrived, which was interesting. They, they came in. Any Americans here? There might be some more American stories later, so um, I just want to don't offend anybody. These US Marines arrived, and they were full of themselves, to be honest. Oh, we can fly this little toy. Oh, yeah, this is going to be a piece of purse for us. Um, after a few little incidents they had, they quietened down quite a lot and were seen to sit there quietly reading pilot's notes. <coughs> For example, Harrier, this is not a real one in case you weren't sure, but they are quite small. Vertical takeoff, you put the nozzles down in simple, simple terms, put the nozzles down to 45 degrees, check you've got duck pressure going to the wingtips and the, and the tail where the puffer jets control, and then you put it down to the vertical position and you slam the engine and up it goes. 
and you keep the stick absolutely central. It's not hard, okay? One, one US Marine put the nozzle to 45 degrees, check the duct pressure, slam the engine. So what did it do? It leapt up going forward and he realised this is not quite right, so he pulled the nose up. So he's hovering <laughs> like this. There's an instructor sitting in a little caravan who's on the radio giving advice to, to anybody. And this guy was Hoof Proudfoot and someone said, I heard this conversation afterwards, hey Hoof, what did you say to the guy when he's doing this? He said, what can you say to someone who's about to die? <laughs> because you can't say push the nose forward because it'll just plummet. You can't say just pull the nozzles down because it'll just go backwards. He's got to do them both together. But he actually did manage to work it out and get control of it and, and land and then going for a beer. <laughs> Another one sat there for a vertical takeoff, slammed the engine, and like any other conventional aircraft, pulled the control column back. So what did it do? Lift the nose up and went backwards, <laughs> off the pad, onto the grass, smoke, dirt everywhere, wrote the engine off. So I don't know who paid for that, but... And then these guys did the, the basic 22 flights and they went back to the States, and I'd arrived in Germany and we saw a photograph of a Harrier, a US Marine that had crashed at an air show. And one of these guys, he must have had 50 hours on type and he was doing an air show. And he had been going backwards, put the nozzles forward slightly, went backwards and then did a reverse flare and stalled it in reverse. Minus 50 knots, too much nose down, wing drop, stumpf. The hitting the ground, fired the ejection seat and he survived, but he didn't eject. He was very, very lucky. How can, you be doing, how can you be doing an air show with 50 hours on type? The Harry at the time was state-of-the-art. It had inertial navigation system, one of the very early ones. It was all, no laser gyros, it was real gyros. Uh, moving map display wasn't LCD. It was 35mm uh, film strips of a map, which had to be run across with a light projecting through. But it worked, it was fantastic. But it was pretty basic stuff when you look back now. <laughs> it was, yeah, but it had a uh, 1,200 square mile coverage, it was pretty good. But when we, to digress, when we were flying to Sardinia for weapons camps, we, we had no map for the first half because we had to do a latch up halfway down to get the map for Sardinia, so it was a bit complicated. Head up display was cathode ray tube, but again it was great driven by the inertial nav, and you could fly really accurately on it, really great. And um, inertial corrections for gun aiming and rocket aiming, all that sort of thing. So it was a very good gun sight. And as far as I know, one of the first rocket ejection seats, because we need to be able to eject from the hover. And you can't jettison the canopy, you have to explode it. So we had a miniature detonating cord which exploded the canopy, and you went up straight through. And of course, the, the V-style side of it was, was pretty cool. Um, our final flights in, on the Harrier course, we went up to Lossy Mouth and did a, a bit of low-level attack navigation, finished up with a first-run attack, which means, you know, first run onto the range, pull up, tip in, fire guns. So I did my navigation, got up, pulled up, tip in, missed off the target, fired at the wrong target, zero score. Okay. So at the course presentation, a few days later, um, I had the sort of contradictory prizes of... Uh, the winner of the trophy for coming top of the course, but awarded a bum gun for the worst ever score on the FRA. <laughs> <laughs> then went to um, 
three squadron in, in Germany. Now it's really fantastic to get posted to Germany. It was a great place to fly and really exciting flying. So a few details about the, the Harrier itself. Say 22,000 pound thrust engine, obviously to be able to hover. The empty weight's 12,500 pounds. So if you've got full internal fuel, you only weigh 17,000 pounds and you've got 22,000 pound thrust. So it went like a rocket. Initial rate of climb, 30,000 feet a minute. Unbelievable. Um, two 30 millimeter cannons and carry assorted bombs, snib rocket pods, cluster bombs, etc. So performance breaks off to 40,000 feet, two minutes, 23 seconds. That was a world record at the time. It was faster than lightning to get to 40,000 feet. Normal conventional takeoff, 0 to 100 knots in five seconds. So it just goes. Um, low level, you're burning 100 pounds a minute. So 5,000 pounds internal fuel gives you, say, 40, 45 minutes with the reserves. We normally carried uh, drop tanks, so you had about 50 minutes, 55 minutes low flying. Most of our takeoffs were short takeoff. You couldn't do a vertical takeoff with any sort of load or even full fuel. So you'd accelerate to 60 to 90 knots, depending on your weight, and then pull the nozzles down to a predetermined setting, 60 degrees, 50 degrees, and then it would get airborne with a combination of jet lift plus whatever wing lift you've got at 90 knots, which is not much. So once again, let's see the magic of YouTube. There might be a short advertisement first. Hopefully I can stop it in three seconds. Do you have played World of Tanks yet? You're wasting your life. You can jump. You can swim. Right. Once again, I'm not sure if you're going to be able to hear. Is there a speaker coming from here or is it just up there? I saw people doing it. I'm not sure if it was very effective. Let's get going anyway. Favourite tactic to launch a fully armed Harrier in the field is the rolling vertical takeoff. Speed is set to 90 knots and the engine nozzle angle to 60 degrees. The pilot presets this angle by means of a stop. The nozzle lever itself is kept fully forward. All checks complete, full power. At 90 knots, nozzle lever back to the stop. The engine nozzle rotates and the Harrier lifts off. Now the nozzle lever is moved slowly forward, rotating the nozzles to the horizontal position and accelerating the Harrier into wing-borne flight. A GR Mark I, number one squadron, outbound on a tactical photo reconnaissance mission somewhere over West Germany. is captured in sharp detail by the aircraft's camera fitted to its centerline station. Now, a swift dash back to its hide to unload its precious film.
download the five cameras contained in the pod. The film is dispatched to a mobile photo intelligence unit. And within minutes, the photographs are being used to brief pilots on the target location. Within an hour of the targets first being caught on film, a two-ship of Harriers from Number One Squadron is rooting out low level towards them. The effect of their snare rockets and BL-755 cluster bombs is devastating. The only thing about that is when you're looking at photo reconnaissance film, they, they leave it in a strip and you look through with stereophonic glasses so you can actually get 3D pictures from them rather than print them out, but you get the general idea. This is a bit of hovering, you want to see this one as well? A bit of hovering and so on. It's all German, so you can't hear the commentary, but... It's a, a three-squadron Harrier at a, doing show in the middle of Germany. See the, the nozzles move back as he starts to move. Noisy, yeah, especially with the intakes right there. It was very noisy and it was one of the, one of the downsides. 
and with radio transmission it was really hard to hear each other we, we just had to have the same things twice break right break right hard turn left hard turn left go you know you had to, it was really noisy inside it wasn't great at all I'm not going to show this one just for interest that was Pete Squire was um, one of my flight commanders in Germany he went on to be um, chief of the defense force so Peter Squire um, UK Defence Force and he died last week, very sad, really good guy. Okay, a little about Harrier Combat, um, it came out in the newspapers somewhere in mid 70s that the Americans had developed a new skill called VIFing, Vector and Forward Flight. Yeah, well, well we were doing it for, for a few years before that but the earlier Harriers had restrictions on the speed and the power setting you could use to move the nozzles and when they got upgraded to the GR3s and, and the, the nozzle drive the bicycle chains got strengthened, then you can use Harry, uh, the, the vectoring with full power at a greater range of speeds. So what you could do with it is if you were turning hard and you pull the nozzles down to, to 90 degrees, you obviously got one more G of turn. So it gave you an instantaneous turn, plus aerodynamically it actually pitched up when you pull the nozzles down, even the circuit. You put the nozzles down and it pitched up a little bit and you had to put, stick forward. So it gave you pitch up extra turn and it slowed down and it slowed down at about 30 knots a second so if somebody's behind you and they're trying to track you and you want to force them through nozzle pull like hell and get the force through and then you reverse clean up unload the aircraft push and accelerate again 30 knots a second going up so you get behind them and that was how we used buffing really so wasn't magical in terms of combat, but it was a, not a bad defence move. One of the exercises we did each year was at Fansburg. This was not part of NATO. This was the post-World War II allies of France, UK and USA preparing to defend West Berlin if the Russians ever closed the corridor access through East Germany, which they did every year. And we had to go and stamp the table and quote the Potsdam Agreement of 1945, etc., etc. So we used to practice doing close air support in case we had to support an army of tanks, a column of tanks pushing through to Berlin. Um, when I led a four-ship going up to Fazburg, the first time I did it, my inertial nav said steer 020. My VOR, my navigation, was saying turn right 050. I went, oh, that's interesting. My number three, what have you got? And he said, oh, mine says 050. And we plotted a few things, and the intelligence decided that the Russians had installed a VOR over the border, same frequency as Fansburg, same ident, and stronger, and they were trying to get us to fly over the boundary, <laughs> presumably to shoot us down. So, yeah, good fun, eh? But cheeky. Weather comparison. So we had a meeting with the Americans and the French, and we were talking about what our weather limits were for this exercise. RAF... We could fly, have to be 500 feet clear of cloud. In other words, if you're flying in a 250 foot low flying area, 750 foot cloud base. But if the weather visibility is in excess of five kilometres, you can accept a lower cloud base at pilot's discretion. In other words, it's entirely up to you. French, 1500 foot cloud base. We're, whoa, that's a bit high. Americans, what's your limit? 4,500 feet cloud base. We just burst out laughing. And went, you're joking. They said, well, that's ridiculous, so what will you do for real? Because you're never going to get that. You might get it one or two days a week. Well, well, we stick to the rules. Give me a break. So we didn't see much of them during the week. I think I saw them once when they were 
two aircraft were late on target and then they got lost. And I literally had to lead them and show them where their reporting point was. That's another story. Okay. So, <laughs> don't keep criticising Americans. Um, I came halfway through my tour in Germany and came back to New Zealand for a visit. And Dad and I again share flu in the Nationals. This time was down at Omarama. Um, using standard sirs, photograph courtesy of Peter Lane. <laughs> oh, where did I put my... And I managed to win one day. Uh, it was a really, really weak day, not very good conditions, so I decided the only way to get anywhere was to go into cloud, and I climbed up in cloud to 10,000 feet, which gave me a good head start on the, on the route, and I finished up winning that day. I also flew aerobatics in this poor photograph of a thing called a Salto, 13 metre wingspan glider with a V-tail, and this was one of the few gliders in the country that you could do anything with. You could do tail slides, inverted, plus six, minus three and a half G, um, flick manoeuvres, and all sorts. So I did a couple of goes at that and read the handbook and decided what well, I could go up, go up there and read it out, uh, which was really good fun. So one of my early really good um, displays, if you like. Shortly after that, I got invited to go to the factory in Germany to go and fly this glider and display to them. Luckily, I was based in Germany at the time, so I was able to accept that. Let's just get that up a bit. A few more, Harry. How are you, am I holding your interest? Do you want me to go faster? Or Okay, yep. Um, a few more war stories from Germany. I should say, this book is all about me, but it's all about my stuff-ups as well. Now, one of them was I landed on the, on the field and on a deployed site and landed on the metal strips and with the nozzles and the hover stop. And then when I taxied off, I pulled the flaps up, but I forgot to raise the nozzles. So when I started putting on power to taxi in, it just dug a hole in the ground and threw stones everywhere and, and all over the, the takeoff strip. So the engineers came rushing out with brooms to sweep it off. I offered gallantly to help, but they said, no, no, no sir, it's okay. The boss wasn't quite so polite. He was, get your ass over there and sit down so I tend to come out. <laughs> okay, sir. <laughs> Survival scramble. This was Wildenrath from the air with the main runway, taxiways north and south, and the, we had three squadrons there, three, three, four, and 20, based along there. When we had a, an exercise, a war on, we, we de deployed to the southern side of the airfield where there were hardened shelters to taxi, and there weren't, there weren't covers, but they had uh, revetments, concrete revetments all around, so protection from bomb and so on. If we had an incoming attack, we would scramble, survival scramble. Sometimes you'd be in the aircraft, sometimes you'd just be sitting in the crew or whatever, or Nissan hut. Scramble, scramble, scramble. Rush out, jump in the aircraft, put the low pressure fuel cock on, put a gang bar on of four switches, auxiliary power unit, it was a little jet engine. You could start it or go to engine start. Straight through to engine start, and with 30 seconds we'd get going. We'd start winding the engine up, as soon as the hydraulic pressure came up at 2,000 pounds, release the brakes, and even while the engine's starting, you could start taxiing. You had so much power from the engine. And then, so you'd be taxiing out, put the fuel on at 20, 20%. When you got up to sort of 25%, the engine's running, taxi out, full flap, go. And that was it. So you can get airborne pretty quick. Now, on this day, 
they'd said to us, there's fog everywhere through Germany. They said, if we do a scramble, it'll be taxi only. Everybody got that? Okay, right. Cool. You know where this is going, don't you? <laughs> it's about an hour and a half later. I'm sitting there in the crew room looking out. Hey, there's quite a bit of blue sky out there now. It's quite good. It's clearing up nicely. Scramble, scramble, scramble. Right across the top of the aircraft. And I was the second guy out. Vaughan Dow was quicker than me, and he got going, and he was taxiing out, and I was second. And as he taxied onto the area there to take off, he turned... He turned left and taxi back in again. Now that's what you do if you have a problem with the aircraft. You turn back in. If you don't have a problem, it's taxi only. You carry on all the way around. And then ATC said, all aircraft cleared for takeoff. That's what you do if it's a real scramble. Otherwise, they say, clear to taxi. So I had this nagging doubt in the back of my mind. Is it still taxi only? Well, hang on, no, Vaughan's gone back. You must have a problem with the aircraft. And they said, clear for takeoff. Okay. Go, get airborne, four seconds later, and they said, who's that got airborne? I went, oh, bugger. <laughs> so I had to give my call sign, whatever it was, Alpha 3-5 or something. I could see them going, who the hell's that bloody Gatland? And they're going, um, why are you getting airborne? No, they didn't say that, they just said, aircraft airborne, nobody else take off, nobody else take off. I went, oh dear, okay. I said, how about I fly away and I'll do an ILS instrument approach and come back. And they said, no, don't lose sight of the airfield. So there I am, <laughs> penalised by having to fly around around the airfield at 400 feet for the next 15 minutes, while all the other aircraft that are taxiing over, 20 squadrons taxiing along here and going along there, and four squadrons taxiing down the main runway. And I had to wait to get down to hover fuel or for somewhere to clear so I could land. So when I explained to the boss, he said, hmm, okay. Yeah, right. Richie Prophet, who was the squadron, the, the base standards officer, thought it was hilarious. But I became famous as that pilot who took off when the whole of Germany was closed in fog. <laughs> so if you hear that nagging voice in the back of your head, <laughs> just check. Bird strike. I, I had quite a good bird strike, and JC was talking about one earlier. It was pretty similar. I was chasing uh, three, three shipper Harriers and I saw them in the distance. I went low behind this hill, full power, came around about 550 knots, bang, into a buzzard. It hit, the impact was so hard that I, I slid forward on the seat and the lap strap gave me blood blisters across my thighs just from the impact of hitting. And it came through the nose, covered me in bits of bird shit, um, peeled the aluminium frame away from the windscreen, covered the front window and the miniature detonating cord which exploded the canopy was hanging down in front of my face. So I zoomed up to about 5,000 feet and went, I don't really want to eject like this. So I did, it flew okay and I managed to go back and land fine. But interestingly, uh, about a month later, the boss called me in and he said, I've just had this thing from flight safety officer in headquarters saying they looked at where you had this incident and there's an airfield that's about 10 miles closer a German airfield was over there. Why didn't you just, what, they're asking, why didn't you go there? Well, the obvious reason was I had my map, which was going back to Husum in Denmark. And that's what I was familiar with. I didn't even know there was another airfield there. But I went, hang on a minute, um, that, that runway's east-west, and I wouldn't have had to land into Sun. So that's why I didn't go there. I went, to the, went back to Husum. He went, yeah, yeah, I like that story. <laughs> which proves, as always, bullshit baffles brains every time. <laughs> Sam Hawk exercise. We used to do 
exercises with the Americans and also with the um, British rapier missiles and all sorts of other things. And this one occasion we, we had an exercise for a week of attacking this American Hawk missile site. It was a fixed site, not like a mobile one here. But they wanted us to come in at 400 knots and 500 feet and do their attacks and we said, come on, let's be realistic about this. No, that's what we want you to do. Said, okay, we'll do it your way for the first three days but Thursday and Friday we want to we'll attack our way and they said okay and they were claiming 90% kills for the first three days and I, I was actually down there at the site and I knew we had an attack coming in at 10 o'clock exactly to attack the site and the officer sitting there going to the guys the radar operators can you see anything and they go no sir no sir and exactly 10 o'clock this noise of aircraft coming over the top and they go did you see anything and they go no we didn't see a thing so I said that's how we normally do our attacks. Up the valley, pull up, tip in from the side with radar, Doppler radar, can't pick you up until you're online, pretty much. A bit more to it than that, but they just did not see a thing. So they got a bit of a wake-up wake up message there. Every year we used to go down to Sardinia for a weapons cap practice camp, and we'd fly for three or four weeks. Uh, four ships just going and doing weapons, concentrated weapons training, which was, was great fun. I just love that photograph. Um, this was my last week on the three squadron and Pete Squire, again, my flight commander and uh, probably the boss, decided that we'd all have a, give me a treat and Pete as well and a good mate of mine, Gemma Ross. We flew down to Malta to have a look for, for a couple of days, which was just great. Now, my, one of my sister's father-in-law, Jeff White, Waipak was... Um, a Spitfire pilot based in Malta. So it was just really interesting to, to go and see where he was flying from, to Cali and so on. Uh, quite interesting. So then I got posted to Broad in Wales, the weapons, tactical weapons unit, which is um, weapons and combat instructing. And that was back on the Hunter again for the first 18 months and then Hawks. Hunter, great aeroplane. I look at this one over here, which I thought I was going to be able to fly for a while when Dave Phillips was looking, I thought I was in that stage one, must be, was going to be doing a contract with the Navy, and I thought I was going to be able to fly it for a little while, and I got Hunter back on my New Zealand licence, <laughs> but it didn't quite, the contract didn't come out, so it was a bit of a shame. Uh, but great aircraft to fly, really nice to fly. Maximum speed is 620 knots at low level, or 1.25 in a shallow dive, as they say. 17,000 feet a minute rate of climb, so only about half the Harrier, but even so, it was still pretty good. Four, four cannons. The highlight of, the, I mean, the instructing was fantastic, but on what I'm going to talk about is the uh, Gibraltar deployment we did for three weeks. And the reason we were down there was that Spain had claims on Gibraltar, and what they would do is when there was a civil airline scheduled service coming to land, they would come and hover, they'd fly helicopters over, and hover them over the runway and try and block anybody from landing. So that was their way of applying political pressure or whatever. So our job was to be sitting about there at copper readiness or a bit further down and if the radar saw the helicopters coming over we would scramble, get airborne, fly, fly around the rock, come back in at high speed and if the helicopter sitting there you'd swoop past them and beat them up. And you'd go around the rock again, and if they were still there second time round, you'd aim at the water and fire a warning shot as you went past. And you'd fly around the rock again, if they were there a third time, you'd shoot them down. 
So that was our instructions. So I, I never had to do any of that, but one of my predecessors, I think the previous year or year, two years before that, got as far as firing warning shots before they, before they took off. So that's the main reason we were there. But um, I didn't have any of that, but what we did was, was go down to, just off North Africa, there were some Russian anchorages where they anchored ships for two or three months uh, for repainting and refitting rather than take them all the way back up through the Black Sea and so on. So we just fly past and take photographs of whatever was there for intelligence purposes. Now one of our guys discovered that if you've, apparently if you're flying at 620 knots in the Hunter and you fly over a ship and you just do an air brake test, the air brake pops down and up again and it creates a shockwave which goes crack across the ship which must thought was great sport to really piss off the Russians. <laughs> so one of the Russian soldiers, or sorry, um, Navy guys, thought it would be great sport to fire a few anti-aircraft rounds back at us. <laughs> so we went, okay, missiles came down from above, you can't fly closer than a quarter of a mile from a Russian ship. Okay, fair enough. It was good fun while it lasted. <laughs> if, we could, if there was nothing to see... Also, we did some Navy exercises, which I'll talk about in a minute. And if we couldn't do that, we just went and did air combat. Sport of kings yet again. That's a great photo of the, of the rock and the runway. It's only 5,800-foot uh, runway or something. It's not that big, but big enough for a hunter. Um, one day, we got to do some firing behind a, a Navy ship towing a splash target. And it was my, my turn to go out and fire four cannons from a Hunter, 430mm cannons, which you only do once every five years if you're lucky, uh, against a splash target. So it was being towed along at 25 knots, whatever the Mohawk was doing. Pulled up, tipped in, lined up on the splash target, brrr, firing four cannons. <laughs> Whole thing shaking like hell. Circuit breakers popped, literally. <laughs> really shook thing. And I pulled off and the guy said, good shooting. I went back and landed. And that night we went on board the ship for a bit of a social visit. And one of the guys said to me, um, were you that hunter pilot that was firing the splash target? And I said, yeah, yep. He said, um, you hit it. And I said, yeah. He said, but you sank it. <laughs> <laughs> oh, really? <laughs> but isn't that the aim to hit it? He said, no, no, you're supposed to miss it. <laughs> uh, okay. <laughs> Inadequate briefing, guys, come on. Give me a break. Now, one day when I was flying from Jibbin, we were, we were heading off. We'd gone across the uh, Russian anchorages and we were heading across to Little Spanish Island. I think it's, oh, I can't remember it's called now, but there was a, a lighthouse. So we used to flash across there at high speed as well, just to piss them off. But as I was going along, the low pressure fuel light came on, a little red light. No, beep, 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 warning, just red light. Oh, low fuel pressure. Okay, you, the drill is you just bring the power back a little bit. Light went out. Went, uh, okay. And then literally five seconds later, light came on again. I went, hmm, not too happy about this. So I said to my number two, you carry on. I'm going to pull up and start heading back to Jim, which I did. And as I was pulling up, the light was coming on lower, lower power settings. So I kept throttling back and throttling back. I got up to about 17,000 feet. And then it was back at idle and the low pressure light was now on permanently. I went, right. And they say, don't try and advance the thrust because it'll just flame out probably. Okay, I'm gliding, effectively. So back to another one-on-one -on -one approach. But this one was a bit tight, and I didn't think I was going to make it, so I jettisoned the fuel tanks, got clearance from radar, said no ships in the area, bang the tanks off, and then I, I just made it back and intercept the slope at about 3,000 feet, one-on-one -on -one down to land. 
the controller there was a, a girl, a voice I'd never heard before. Turned out this was day one. She arrived in Gibraltar the day before. Day one on the job. And apparently he said to the boss, oh, it's a May Day, you take over. And he said, no, you know, you know what to do, just do it. So, and she did a good job. So I bought her a drink ladder. We converted to Hawks. Hawk, fantastic aeroplane, love it. Love flying, great to fly, great performance in terms of the wing and how it turned and everything else. Um, only six and a half thousand pound thrust. It was doing about 540 knots and uh, say nine, nine and a half thousand feet rate of climb. So again, lower than a hunter, but as an advanced trainer and as a light attack aircraft, it was fantastic. Uh, structurally, plus 9G, minus 4G, and at low level, 400 knots, you could turn and pull 8G. Now it's either 7 or 8, my memory's a bit hazy here. Let's say 8G because it sounds better. And you would sustain it. It would hold 400 knots and pull 8G. Absolutely amazing. So we were doing a lot of air combat. And Hunter and Harrier were doing it at 6G where they had a limit of 7. This you're pulling 8G, and you're pulling 8G for long periods of time. So it's physically quite hard work, but just fantastic performance. But we, we landed, you'd land, put your jacks seat pins in, shut down, stand up and go, oh, wait a bit. But lightheaded here, we found out we had to actually just sit there, take a few deep breaths before you tried standing up. So there are a few considerations, but it was great. My type rating on the Hawk consisted, first of all, I had a ride with Andy Raps, another instructor, and I was in the back seat. This was just fun. But we lined up for a two-ship takeoff, and he said, oh, you can fly it, you have control. So, oh, okay. So my first flight in the Hawk was number two of a formation takeoff and climb away and doing a combat or something. So easy, easy to fly, really nice. The type rating, I did with Steve Jennings, who was an ex-Harrier guy, and it was a th literally a three-hour type rating. He said, hydraulic system, same as the Harrier. Can you describe it? I went, oh yep, the primary system does this and that, secondary system does this, and it's got um, you know, reservoir bottles from emergency loading the gear. And he said, right, exactly. Electrics, <laughs> same as the Harrier. Oh, okay. Three hour type rating, done. So, shortest type rating ever. Now, my opinion, if New Zealand Air Force should have bought these, I'm not going to enter debates, but fantastic aircraft. They could have used it for advanced training and had attack versions of it with a bigger engine and 18 countries have bought it and I, I, I was asked to write an article for Wings magazine in 82 or somewhere and I reckon then I could see political influence maybe losing the strike wing and I hope like hell it didn't happen but here we are. So that was my opinion in mid 80s. Another of um, here we go minor stuff up by AJG. I was flying at low level in Wales, and as JC was saying, when you're flying at low level in Germany and in Wales, anywhere else, if you saw another aircraft, it was fair game to have a little mini combat. And we had rules like you did about um, you could do two times 180 degree turns, and that was it. But we said, well, as soon as you've rolled out, you start counting again. So, <laughs> but on this particular day, there was a phantom going the other way, and we saw each other and turned in. And I, I pulled up, and I can outturn this guy, pulled up, overbanked, got the nose down behind him, and then looked down and went, oh shit, I think I've overcooked this. And I was now going down quite quick, going, um, whoops. Now I'd made a rule with myself, 
that I would never ever fly into the ground on an aeroplane. I was going to eject. I, I had one friend, possibly two, die through, one doing the air display, we went to cloud, came out too steep, and tried to carry on, flew into the ground. Never ever going to do that. So I looked at my rate of descent, went 5,000 feet a minute, okay, the rule is one-tenth of your descent rate to eject. So I said, okay, 500 feet, I'm going to eject. And as I was pulling out, 4,000 feet a minute, 400 feet, 3,000 feet a minute, 300 feet, 2,000 feet a minute, 100,000 feet a minute, 100 feet, yeah, I'm just going to make it. So I pulled out, <laughs> pulled out and carried on, but I literally would have ejected rather than fly into the ground, which I was quite pleased that I had that, <laughs> had that rule. But anyway, so that's the gun sight film that I took, so I did actually shoot him down. And my last, I'm glossing over all my time instructing it in Wales, which is just great. My book goes into a lot more detail. Um, one of my last trips I did was to go up to Wittering with a, a hawk and do me, one hawk versus two harrier combat. And in a nutshell, I did two or three flights and beat them every time. Because the hawk would outturn the harrier and I knew enough about the harrier ability and tactics to be able to outfly it. And the, the classic 2v1 is one aircraft like the Harrier there would engage and get the enemy to turn, the other guy goes high, and when the first guy's committed to turn, then he would tip in and maybe swap places. But I could, in the Hawk, pulling 8.5G, I could outturn the Harrier relatively easily, keep an eye on the other guy when he came down, pull up and just barrel roll around him, and I basically I, I beat them every time. So, Hawk, fantastic aircraft. Back to New Zealand and got back straight into gliding and also applied for a job with the Air New Zealand. A week after I got back, they were advertising, talk about luck, and got accepted and got on the first course. But I got back to gliding and was became CFI of the Auckland Club for, I don't know, eight, ten years or something, and president for a couple of years. Um, and aerobatics. So here's just a short excerpt of sort of standard finishing of an Eros display. So normally finish up with a reasonably low level loop. And then just wing over into a low pass. So when I do a display, I, I never have a set format because with a glider you can't really do that. So I just start off from three or three and a half and just aerobat, spin, loop, 
barrel roll, all sorts, till I get down to about 800 feet and then just finish off with the same sort of finishing sequence. The thing about air displays, I believe in keeping it simple, keeping it safe, have lots of speed at the bottom and don't try and do something that's, that's pilot-wise very difficult. You've seen so many air displays that people have stuffed up. Um, I keep it, keep it simple. The public don't really want to see difficult air, you know, difficult flying manoeuvres, I don't think. So, just believe in keeping it safe. How am I doing time-wise? Speed up? Speed up? Yep, okay. Sorry? <laughs> so, joined Air New Zealand, that's a lot of familiar name, uh, faces for some of the guys down the back of the room. I will talk about one little flight I did in, in a friendship from Napier to Wellington where there was a good wave day and I think Bob Scott maybe was a captain and I was co and it was his leg but I said why don't you take off and fly into the leading edge of that wave there like a glider pilot would, I bet you'll get some good lift there and he said um, you have control why don't you, <laughs> you do it. So we took off from Napier and got ATC clearance obviously into the leading edge of the wave and instead of climbing at 1500 feet a minute we climbed at 3500 feet a minute got up at 10,000 feet, went straight across into the primary wave and then just went all the way down almost to Wellington in the primary wave and we were trimmed back, if friendship people know what I mean, um, throttled back at up to 24,000 feet at V&E, maximum speed, just smoky and smooth as anything. And then we got down towards Wellington just popped across and landed and we knocked 15 minutes off the flight time and we only burned something like 300 kilos instead of 450 kilos of fuel. I remember that one. It was a good day. <laughs> um, live save number three and four. We're just lining up to take off um, at the co-pilot on a 7-3 and it's night time. It's about 7pm. I think it was with Pete Edgar was the captain. I was lining up and I looked down to see if anybody approached and I just saw a flash of light. Half a second gone. I said, Pete, do you see that? And he went, what? No, I can't see anything. I think that was an emergency flare. I'm not sure. I just saw a blink. Ah, I'm going to really make a fool of myself here, but call ATC and say, I think we saw an emergency flare off the south coast of Wellington. People know Wellington off to the south in a strong northerly wind. There's nothing. Nothing but water. So we went up, up to Hamilton for the overnight, came back down the next morning, and I phoned ATC and said, did anything come of that? phone call and they said, oh yeah. They said a Coast Guard went out and they found two guys in a tinny that were getting blown south off coast. They'd had one emergency flare, they fired it and I was the only person to report it. So, so okay, here's my address. Huh. <laughs> Small crate of beer would be very nice, thank you, but I never saw anything. Yeah. But I hate to think what would happen to them. Engine flying, so again quickly went through friendship 737, uh, 767 for 18 years, 9 years co, 9 years captain. Did a short stint instructing at Swiss World, new outfit flying from Geneva to um, Newark, New Jersey, New York and back. That was great fun, 27 flights, um, 8 returns to New York and back, just on a holiday job. Then 10 years on the 777 and then 787. Um, line flying for a year and then I meet, reached my best before date, age 65 so I had to stop flying so I'm now instructing in the simulator on the 787 and the uh, triple seven. Fencing, got back to New Zealand and got back into sports so again cutting it short did pretty well 
um, in sports in New Zealand in fencing. Um, first in the won the North Island Champs twice. Uh, only went to nationals once for, for a few years for various reasons. I think I came fifth. Oceanic Games, uh, about seventh, and we won the teams gold medal. Basketball played just non-stop forever, and gliding, a couple of couple of competitions, second in the ultimate provincial, got a gliding gliding record. But in, in the course of the gliding record, which was a two-seat, 100-kilometer speed triangle, landed in a paddock, and I basically stuffed it up, heavy landing, and broke the fuselage, and exhibited all the, all the human traits that we, we teach, human factors, errors that we teach our pilots not to do. So I didn't want to claim the record, but people said, oh, no, you should claim it anyway, but uh, I felt a bit guilty about doing it. I also became the agent for importing gliders for a while, and I got involved in introduction of motor gliders into New Zealand and um, wrote a proposal for the rules and then wrote a training syllabus for flying motor gliders which were approved by civil aviation and that's a basic list of the glider displays I've done over the years. There was one day I was flying from Drury, the Auckland Gliding Club, just thermaling in, in my discus over the hills and this tiger moth came across and looked like he was going to have a go at me, like combat. And I went, so I sort of turned, and, and yeah, he responded the right way, so right way. So I went, oh, okay. So we started to see combat with me and a glider of him and this tiger moth. And people who have flown tiger moth know when you start doing aerobatics and pulling, it starts losing height faster than a glider does. So I could outturn him and outperform him and had more energy. And basically, I got behind him and shot him down. So he, he headed off back over there, and I got back in the thermal and climbed back up again. And five minutes later, he came back again. He wanted another go. So, okay. <laughs> so he had another go, but the outcome was still the same. So I have, to this day, I have no idea who it was. I have no idea whether he recognised my registration or what. <laughs> but it was good fun. Um, I gave up fencing for a while when the kids were growing up and it was too hard, but I took up windsurfing. And again, cut a long story short, I got involved in organising a club um, started competing, organised things like City of Sales series around Auckland and nationals and a couple of international teams events and started doing pretty well myself competition wise and we ran a lot of clinics, I, I taught windsurfing at schools, school camps. One thing about flying long haul is you get days off at home during the week so you can go out to school camps and things. Um, was national champion 2002 and I was masters champion for 10 years or so. Went to world champs in Perth 1997. I came 18th out of 50 overall and second in the grand masters. Just one little story there. Aaron McIntosh and uh, Barbara Kendall and Shane Bright and all these other people there as well. Aaron McIntosh was sitting on his board between races as was about 50 other windsurfers between race having a, a short rest and someone said, Shark! And they saw this great white just came along, meandered along underneath them, and all pulled their legs up out of, the, out of the water. But he just meandered underneath and took off in the distance. So don't fall in. Good rule. Don't fall in. One of my favourite races we used to do was um, from Takapuna, the Round Rangatoto race. So we'd go Round Rangatoto and, and Mototap, Mototapu, and then and bank. It was about 3 hours 15. That was just great race. I love those long distance races. A few more lives saved. Again, I'll make this really quick. 
in Scotland, staying with friends in a shopping mall, I saw these two young kids playing with an escalator, and they were, they were lying on it on their stomach and getting lifted up on the handrail and going along, and I just thought, gee, that's not a good thing to do, because it's just a four-story drop down the side. Do I interfere? Hey, come on, you know me. Oh, yeah, I interfere. So I started going across to say, hey, you kids, stop doing that. And as I was going, one of these guys got, was lifted on the handrail and going across the top and it started going down and he started falling down the outside. And I kid you not, I got there just in time to grab his arms as he was hanging on the side going, <laughs> and he, he was gone for all money. And I just got there in time to grab his arms with a vice grip which probably hurt him for months afterwards. Lifted him up and took him back up. Now there was literally a four-story drop down there to the floor, so took him back up. His mother had now, who was having coffee, had seen what was come, happening. She was rushed over. I, I lifted him up against the flow of the escalator, and the mum just grabbed him and took off. I, I'm not sure if she even knows what happened, but I stood there. My my wife and daughter had been to the toilet. When they came back, I was a gibbering wreck. I was pale. I could hardly breathe. I was going, oh shit! I said, what's the matter with you? Another one, finished windsurfing and just going back in and, and we're about to pack up our gear. This was in Conifer Grove on the Manukau Harbour. We could see this little yellow thing going on the outgoing tide. It's about 25 knot wind. Went, what the hell's that? I don't know, I thought, I'm going to sail out and have a look. So I got my gear and went back out and sailed out and there was an upturned kayak with two kids, probably I don't know, 11 years old, two boys, and they tipped up in the wind and they were just going out on the outgoing tide at six, seven knots and again, gone for all money I reckon. One of the kids, when I got him to try and hang on to my board, he couldn't even hang on. He was that weak and tired and cold. So I sort of lay him across. To cut a long story short, I managed to get the kayak up and get them back in and get them back to shore, but this, they were gone. Oh, and I pulled somebody out of the surf of the Medi out of the water at the Mediterranean and holiday in south of France. And I pulled out a kite surfer out of uh, out of the water in Maui, Kailua Beach, uh, not Maui, um, Honolulu. And yeah, I won't worry about the other ones. Um, flight stand manager for 10 years for NUC, and that's like chief flying instructor. So oversaw the introduction of the A320 and the 777 from training perspective. And I was in charge of cabin crew training as well. So that was really interesting for 10 years. Introduced a few new programs like threat and error management and unusual attitude training. And uh, I spoke at a few world airline training conferences and so on. I also write exams of civil aviation or for ASL, must be a time. And I've done threat and error management lectures for some of the medical, medical fraternity like di diagnostic labs and so on. I've done one in Auckland and one in Rotorua. Rewritten the motor glider training notes. I flew the first 777 into Wellington, which was quite a good press day. That was quite a good takeoff, full thrust takeoff with a very light aircraft. And my, my co pilot then, um, who shall not be named, but it was actually Dave Wilson, who's <laughs> the fleet manager. And I said, Hey, this is going to go like a rocket when you get airborne. You're going to have to really raise the nose to 25, 30 degrees. And he did that, and the speed was just still rocketing up, so I just started pulling the flap up from 500 feet because it was just going to be overspeed the flaps. That was good fun. Tom Scott did a cartoon about that. Fundraising, um, 
done quite a few PR sims with, um, well, Richie McCaw for one. People paid, one guy paid $7,000 for this fundraising charity auction to have a, a 777 simulator arrive with Richie McCaw. So, great stuff, good money. Um, this is tongue in cheek, please don't take it seriously. <laughs> That's what I tell my family. <laughs> uh, Richie was a fantastic pilot. I, I talked him, we did a flight out of, in the simulator out of San Francisco, flew under Golden Gate Bridge, um, flew between the buildings, I did that bit, but then we climbed up to 4,000 feet, gave him a double engine failure and did a glide approach, because he's a glider pilot as well of course. Um, and then we went down to Queenstown, and oh, I did him, gave him a barrel roll, which he just followed my instructions, did a perfect barrel roll. Down to Queenstown, flew under, under, I flew under Bungie Bridge, <coughs> and then gave him another engine failure and did a glide approach into Queenstown. So you can have good fun in simulators. In passing, have I had any problems flying at all? Nah, bugger all really. Airline flying safe as anything. Two bomb threats which really was spurious, family squabbles, one nutcase, that sort of thing. Medical emergency, we have more diversions with medical emergencies than everything else put together. So airline flying is safe. Never had an um, engine failure. All the practice we do in engine failures at different places. I've never had one. I, mean, I know people have, but I've had none. Uh, one lightning strike that gave me unreliable airspeed in a 767, but it wasn't a biggie. I've had far more scares driving to and from the airport in a car than ever have flying. That's what we tell the fear of flying courses. The most dangerous part of flying is driving to the airport. Got back into fencing, age 59, having given up windsurfing. Got back into fencing and to see how I go, oh, I did okay. I won the nationals when I was 60. So that's me there. And the next oldest guy was 23. So that was, that's probably what I'm proudest of. <laughs> that was quite good. Um, Commonwealth champs, veterans, a couple of silver medals and teams events. I got to China, we were flying to China. Um, I would fly up there overnight in 787 or 777 and land and then get in a taxi and go off to a venue and do a fencing competition. And I've been in the China Amateur Nationals three times and came third, fifth and seventh over three years. And I've been the Shanghai Power Fencing Club champion for about five, five years or so. I love, why go somewhere and sit in a hotel room? <laughs> when you can do sport. Um, I arranged for Sergei Golubitsky, who's a Ukrainian world champion. He was doing a series of clinics in the States. So I thought, oh, I'll contact him and see if he wants to come to New Zealand. So I did, long shot, but all worked out. I butted it up with um, a week at our beach house and a simulator ride and a glider flight, etc., etc. and he had a ball and just loved it, and he's become a very good friend. He and his wife, wife Caro, Carolyn, is a German, German, current German national champion. She's been a German fencing champion for about the last five years or so. And basketball went in the World Masters Games last year. We got a gold medal in one of the over 60s. No big deal, but it's just, you know, just good fun. Sorry. Um, put a bit of time into doing this, publishing my dad's war story. Been meaning to do it for years. He didn't want to publish it, but after he died, we said, the family said, this is too good a story not to publish. So 
when it got towards his 100th birthday, I went, no, I've got to get on and do this. So I put it all together. Peter Lane gave me a huge amount of advice on printing, formatting, etc. So I put the whole thing together and published it. Sold 520 copies so far. So it's doing pretty well. And went to France for the commemor 70th commemoration of the, of the Stirling crash. And again, I could talk for ages about this, but you can imagine it was a pretty moving and emotional ceremony. And went to the Resistance Museum in Picardy. This is... Um, Daniel Lebeau, son of Roger Lebeau, who was one of the guys who helped my father when he was uh, escaping, evading. And some of these people in the background, you know, you can't see, this little old lady here, who's in her 90s, was credited with having helped 50 Allied soldiers and airmen during the war resistance. I mean, she'd been shot on sight if they'd caught her. And there were other people in the room who had similar stories, just amazing. Saul Penner was a bomb, my dad's bomb aimer. And unfortunately, he died shortly after that. But it was great, great to meet him. Great guy, and we talked for hours and hours. Simulator training. We're, we're very close to being finished, but I just want to show you this. Um, in simulator training, simulators, you can do things which you can't do in the aircraft. And every every bit of fun exercise, I think, is great training for handling and everything else. So in the 787, for example, you can do barrel rolls from 10,000 feet, 350 knots. You can do a loop. And it falls over the top, but it's quite manageable. It teaches you how to use the head-up display to get maximum angle of attack. Um, take off 2,000 feet, double engine failure, turn back, land. And one of my favourites is quick circuit. How quick can you do a circuit from brakes off to touchdown? What am I bid? What do you reckon? 787, close to max landing weight. How long from brakes off around the circuit to touchdown? Give me a guess. Five minutes? No. Two minutes? Getting closer. 53 seconds is my, my personal record. <laughs> I'll only put the noise on so you can hear the, uh, all the warnings that come out. Scrape the wing, but you, John Tate. I'd like to say that the landing wasn't really that hard. It was a bit of camera shake, honest. <laughs> <laughs> Will you have one here for the next Tower on the <laughs> <laughs> I would. I definitely would. <laughs> I'm not sure whether the company would see it as a good idea. In my book, I've just got a, a list of sporting achievements. That was school, Air Force, back in New Zealand, a few medals, and my 20,000 flying hours for what it's worth. You're not really interested. You've got the general idea, haven't you? About just 2,400 or so in the Air Force and the rest all. Mostly in New Zealand, 700 hours gliding-ish. 
nowhere near as much lighting as some other people by a long way. Um, got a few good reviews and introductions like Barbara Kendall, a very good friend of mine from windsurfing. She's a fantastic lady. I mean, a great achiever, but such a great sportsman and so on as well. Really great. I just can't speak highly enough of her. Um, Sergey, the, the fencing guy, he called me Ace. If I've got time, sorry. <laughs> Sergey said to me one day, he said, can I ask you a question? I said, yeah. He said, if you could talk to yourself as a 19-year-old, and you're now 60-something, what would you say? And I went, oh, I'd say, you don't know what you can achieve if you don't have a go. Because people were always pushing me to have a go, have a go. And I was going, oh, I'm not really sure. Don't know what you can do if you don't, if you don't have a go. And he said, I would say to myself, especially having watched you, don't forget to have fun. His entire life had been fencing under the, the Soviet system and then Ukraine, and he had, didn't have time for fun. So I said, well, I, I just never stopped having fun. And I didn't think of my sporting as training at all. It was, everything I did was just having fun and enjoying it. So somewhere between the two is a compromise of how to get the best out of life, I think. Um, I have over here a bunch of my, my father's escape story and, and my own book. They're um, $25 and $30. If you're only going to buy one, buy my father's book. The escape story is just fantastic. Yeah, by all means, buy mine. Mine's, mine's not bad, <laughs> but <laughs> depends if you're interested or not. But please, if you're going to buy a book, buy his one. It's, it's such a great story. And it's great to be preserved for history. And we've donated one copy to the New Zealand Air Force Museum, one to the Imperial War Museum, um, to the Resistance Museum in France, anywhere else, I can't remember. So we're just, just pleased to have preserved it for family and for history. Sorry to talk so long. I hope you hope you found it interesting. <laughs> Any questions, please? Any questions? Yeah. What are you going to do when you retire? <laughs> <laughs> What's retirement? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, what? Like, but I'm I'm still playing basketball, but the body's starting to get a few sort of sore bits. So I've been lucky. That's the thing. Um, like winning a stairman flight. Hey, <laughs> sorry, <laughs> sorry, digress. We had, we had a draw. It was in the air force. We had a draw. They had one one hunter. You could go and fire four pods of snap rockets, complete aircraft full of rockets. All these instructors go into a draw. One of the guys said, "What's the point of even trying? Arthur Gatton's going to win it. He wins everything." <laughs> uh, and what about today? I've seemed to have won a stairman flight. <laughs> I have, I've been lucky. I've been lucky not to have injuries that have stopped me doing sport. A lot of people have. Mm. Yeah. What was your favourite of the three pastures? All around. Harrier. Far, just from the beast off side of it. The Hawk was the nicest to fly in terms of the turn performance and everything else. The Harrier was just a buzz. The beast off side, flying out of the forward side, flying off its road and, and bits of grass out in the countryside was just so exhilarating. I was doing air sorry, air tests on squad in Germany as well, so the, the, the brakes off the 40,000 feet in about a minute, so I did quite a bit of that. Half full of fuel, just off the road, that's pretty exhilarating. Did you do the Holtmans? No, I left them 
79. But I had a lot of good friends who were down there. I, I've got some great war stories from the Falklands as well. But again, not like ours from today to, <laughs> to tell you all of those. But yeah, there are a lot of, a lot of great stories from guys from the Falklands. You've done very well today, and I appreciate the, appreciate your your audience and participation. Thanks to JC and Matt and everybody else, but I really enjoyed listening to all of you as well. Thank you very much. Well, thank you too, Arthur, and. Uh, I've completely enjoyed today. It's been fantastic. And thank you to all the speakers and to everybody who came along. Um, yeah, it couldn't have gone any better. And particularly thanks to all the uh, folks from Classic Flyers who have helped to make this happen and from the Aeronautical Society. So, uh, yeah, that's it. Thank you, guys. That was the Wings Over New Zealand show with Dave Homewood.